This is Self Work, and I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. At Self Work, we'll discuss psychological and emotional issues common in today's world and what to do about them. I'm Dr. Margaret, and Self Work is a podcast dedicated to you taking just a few minutes today for your own self work. Hello and welcome, or welcome back to Self Work. I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. I'm a clinical psychologist living in Fayetteville, Arkansas, living and working in Fayetteville, Arkansas, and I'm delighted to have any and all of you here. During the last week of June 2021 and the first full week of July, my team and I are taking a bit of a vacation. One of us has a move to make, and I'm actually getting ready in just a few days to teach my first course on perfectly hidden depression to therapists. In fact, if you're a therapist and if you'd like to sign up for this power-packed CEU conference, that's capital C-E-Y, then O-U-C-E-U, with an exclamation point, you can get 15% off the whole thing. First, in your show notes, there will be a link to the general conference, and then you can use the coupon code PRESENTERREF, capital P-R-E-S-E-N-T-E-R, capital R-E-F, and you'll save 15% at least up until the day of the conference, which again is July the 6th. I hope to see you there. So many of you write to me telling me the thing you like best about self-work is that in almost every episode I focus on what you can do about it. You know, mental health issues are often complex. However, there's often a place you can also go to gain hope, start broadening your own understanding, learning something new to try, or screwing up the courage to risk a change. In this episode, sponsored once again by BetterHelp, we're focusing on the development of self-compassion. I had someone tell me just last week who's getting a very painful divorce, and it's heavy on their heart that it feels like such a failure. They said, you know, I can't imagine having self-compassion after I asked them to consider that. Their very words were, I've done too many things that I now know weren't good for the marriage. Remorse is one thing. Living with shame is another. And self-compassion is available if you allow it. But first, let's hear from BetterHelp. Certainly in these times with teletherapy becoming even more the norm, it's another opportunity for you to gain the perspective of a mental health professional on what might be helpful to you and on your own schedule. Take a listen. BetterHelp has now been a sponsor of Self-Work for a few months, and I've been hearing how pleased you are with their services. I couldn't be more excited about that, as by now you know I'm a huge believer myself in the power of therapy. What is BetterHelp? It's an online therapy service that has earned the number one ranking for the quality of their service to their consumers. When you contact them, you are offered several different licensed professional therapists to choose from, all that have been vetted by BetterHelp. You can have sessions via video, text, or phone, and I found, because of course I checked it out before recommending it to you, that each therapist was very available, literally a text away, and made some of the same therapeutic suggestions to me that I'd offer myself as a therapist. Here's an excerpt from a listener who wrote in, I'm a 23-year-old living in Brazil. I'm only writing this message in order to express my gratitude towards you and your podcast, Having anxiety disorder, I always felt like I needed therapy, but I was too anxious to start it. With self-work, not only I've learned some valuable insights about dealing with my condition, but also the basics of how therapy sessions work, which allowed me to finally get some courage to start it. 
With the coronavirus pandemic, I'd also been concerned about attending personal sessions. But then I learned about BetterHelp in your podcast, and it sounded just perfect for what I needed. I've been getting online counseling from BetterHelp for six weeks now, and I feel like it's been helping me a lot. That's just so wonderful to hear. And now BetterHelp has a special offer for you. 10% off the first month of sessions if you use this link. Try BetterHelp.com slash selfwork. That's trybetterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash self-work. I'm never more honored than hearing someone sought therapy after listening to self-work. And if self-work is helping you, maybe better help is your next step. So let's turn to talking about allowing and developing self-compassion. I promise you, it's far from self-pity. One of the most pleasant things about the last few months is that I've gotten to talk to more and more people about perfectly hidden depression, mostly bloggers or podcasters. I won't go into too much about perfectly hidden depression except to say that that's the new book that I've published. And if you're curious about it, you can go to episode three and four and then several others interspersed throughout. It's when perfectionism masks depression. But I've been learning as I go. Many of you may remember that I talked here on self-work about the vulnerability inherent in writing a book, where I knew in my gut that as soon as it was finished, I'd discover something new that would be great to include, or I decided that I disagree with myself about something, or I could have said something so much more clearly, or new research would come out reflecting an even greater correlation between perfectionism and depression, or not. But I had to live with that ambiguity and that vulnerability, or not publish the book at all. And that wasn't an option. So what I'm finding with these interviews is that people are reading the book and absorbing its ideas through the lenses of their own experience, either personal or professional, and offering their own thoughts to me. So I've had this experience that I was somewhat afraid of having, but actually it's quite welcome. I'm learning more about the topic, and I'm realizing I wish I'd written a chapter on teaching children about vulnerability or what particular issues each age group or gender identification might have in addressing perfectionism and shame, and what happens to perfectionism as you age, or how therapists can detect someone with perfectly hidden depression when they're sitting right in front of them, and the list goes on and on. For example, when I was talking to Dr. Fujian Zen, and the YouTube link is included in the show notes, I was very struck with one of her thoughts. She said, you know, when I thought about perfectionists prior to reading your book, I'd always thought of it as a character trait that had more to do with anxiety. But now I can see it differently. Whether or not you identify with perfectly hidden depression or you're just someone who's not comfortable with expressing emotions, that you like to stay more in control of that, you worry about what you might look like, what you might sound like to someone else, that you won't look self-competent. But there is a problem there. If there are feelings buried far underneath the surface that need to be connected with or comforted or soothed, those emotions, those experiences, those feelings are going to have an effect on you no matter what. And what we're talking about today is that through self-compassion, through the very act of recognizing those feelings exist, Your feelings of understanding and tenderness toward yourself can lead to huge changes. Now, a lot of times I'll use the term self-compassion and people will say, what, you want me to feel sorry for myself? 
say, no, no, no. Self-compassion is far from self-pity. Dr. Kristen Neff, who's the author of the book Self-Compassion, writes that there are three elements to it. Mindfulness, recognition of common humanity, and self-kindness. Let me quote her. Having compassion for oneself is really no different than having a compassion for others. Think about what the experience of compassion feels like. First, to have compassion for others, you must notice that they are suffering. If you ignore the homeless person on the street, you can't feel compassion for how difficult his or her experience is. So you have to notice, you have to grow in your mindfulness of it, your awareness of it. Second, compassion involves feeling moved by others' suffering so that your heart responds to their pain. The word compassion literally means to suffer with. When this occurs, you feel warmth, caring, and the desire to help the suffering person in some way. That's the recognition of common humanity. Having compassion also means that you offer understanding and kindness to others when they fail or make mistakes, rather than judging them harshly. And that's kindness. And then finally, when you feel compassion for another rather than pity, it means that you also realize that suffering, failure, and imperfection is part of the shared human experience. Again, another recognition of common humanity. I'm sure you've heard the phrase, there but for fortune go I. Or some people say, there but for the grace of God go I. So having that awareness of your own vulnerability, of the possibility that you also make mistakes or that you get lost or confused, being aware of that, recognition that that just makes you human, and then turning kindness toward yourself. That's self-compassion. Again, people with self-pity tend to define themselves by the losses that have happened to them or the chances missed or the opportunities not taken or they believe were taken away from them. And we tend to think of that as a victim mentality. Self-compassion is simply being aware of your own hurt. But someone who's built their life around looking perfect or stoic doesn't have a clue how to be self-compassionate. Anxiety is far more comfortable for them to feel. Control is of the essence, and self-compassion may seem like the opposite of control. But the potency of those unexpressed emotions of childhood hurts and loss and confusion, not understood and not acknowledged, can lead to silent and mounting depression. They cannot tune into their own feelings, and perhaps you're one of those people, at least not much. Self-compassion involves acknowledgement. And as Dr. Neff said, showing kindness towards yourself. So as I was thinking about how to convey self-compassion to you and how you could get there in order to expand your own emotional range and understanding of your own emotions, I've realized that I use a visualization frequently with people, either sometimes in hypnosis or in a guided imagery. But you can also simply do it in your own mind. And what it does is it makes your kindness toward yourself take the form of your adult self noticing and acknowledging your childhood self. So you almost divide who you are in your own mind, who you are at 25 or 35 or 45 or 65, and who you were at 5. So here's the exercise. You imagine a certain time in your life... And again, this can be through hypnosis or guided imagery or your own 
just thinking or writing, journaling, but mostly I want you to just close your eyes and do this. You imagine a certain time in your childhood, a time that was painful for you. It has a painful memory attached. You want to stay very much in the present, realizing that you are your adult self, that you're no longer that child, but that you're going to peek into your life as a child. And then just sit there with that moment and that memory. Allow yourself to see yourself as a child, dealing with something really troubling or scary or confusing. Maybe something like, I remember when I was three and I couldn't find my mom in the grocery store. I was terrified. Or, I have memories of my brother who'd get really drunk and swear he was going to hurt me when I was left in his care. So I'd lock myself in the bathroom and he'd beat on the door until he passed out. If someone is leading you through this visualization, they can continue to lead you. Or if you're doing this yourself, you see yourself at that age and in that circumstance. But again, you're using the eyes of yourself as an adult. It's as if you're watching a movie. You can ask yourself these questions. What is the younger version of me feeling? How do I feel watching this as an adult? What does that child that was me need to hear? At this point, you again as an adult can say, she needs to hear that it's normal to be scared. Or he needs to hear that it's not his fault. The adult you talks to the child you and gives comfort. Now, again, you can do this as a writing exercise as well, but I really want you to try to visualize it. What are you doing through this exercise? You're developing self-compassion. You can feel, but with a level of objectivity that is your adult self listening in to your child self. And you can be empathic and you can be kind And then you can comfort yourself. The adult you comforts the child you. This can be very effective. A lot of times people say when the visualization is over, they'll say, but I can't leave the child. Or maybe you feel like the child wants to come with you. So in your imagination, in your mind's eye, you bring them with you into your adulthood. So many of us can have compassion and kindness toward a child. It's when we say, as an adult, well, I'm not supposed to feel sorry for myself. But somehow you can give yourself more permission to be compassionate toward the child that you were. So what this self-compassion exercise can do, it can greatly increase your emotional understanding of yourself and expand your emotional range. Why is that important? I've often used the metaphor in therapy of our feelings, our emotions, being like an artist's palette. People who enjoy emotionally rich lives have a huge variety of colors and hues and shades that they know how to create. They have an abundance of colors to work with. Whereas someone with a far less complex palette of emotions knows only how to create or express basic colors, basic emotions. Their emotional life is very restricted. There are only a few safe emotions to express. Without self-compassion, there's too much judgment about what is okay to feel and what isn't. All feelings are okay. Not all actions are okay. That can be justified because of the feelings. Sometimes that's not true at all. But the feeling itself has value because it gives you information. And it has immense power within you. 
I want to say that again. Feelings in and of themselves are okay to have. You just don't want to justify hurting someone else or doing something that is self-destructive or destructive to others because of having that feeling. When you can feel compassion and kindness toward that child who was you and, of course, still is you, you can risk connecting with the emotions that were theirs and claim that experience as part of what made you, you, rather than someone avoiding or denying that child's experience of life as significant. It was significant. It still is significant. But now you're an adult and you can integrate it into who you are as well as the emotions that come along with it. I used an example in an earlier podcast just a few podcasts ago about a son's reflection back to his mom who identified with perfectly hidden depression who said to her, your laughter never reaches your eyes. You know, emotions are messy. Emotions sometimes don't have a base in perceived reality but can be triggered suddenly unless they're highly controlled. But emotions are also what give color and texture and meaning to life. Without them, life is a pattern of facts, devoid of emotion, black and white. Emotional identity is what we remember about loved ones after they die. Dad would have loved this, or Mom would have laughed herself silly, or John would have hated all this pomp and circumstance, or Elise would have been so sad to hear this. It's their emotional imprint that leaves such a mark. We, of course, also remember accomplishment. Granddad could whip anybody at tennis, but that somehow doesn't leave anyone knowing Granddad any better, other than he was an outstanding competitor at tennis. Your emotional stamp on others is what they remember. What is Maya Angelou's famous quote? I've learned that people will forget what you said, people will forget what you did, but people will never forget how you made them feel. With little to no emotional stamp or a highly controlled one, you can actually create a cloak of invisibility around you. No one knows what makes you sad or scared or angry because those emotions have been banished along with the memories that created them. I understand that it can feel like a huge risk to reach out and allow yourself to feel them. But if they're felt appropriately, if they're connected with deeply, honestly, sincerely, and they're not impulsive or destructive actions associated with them. Your emotional life can be an incredible addition to your understanding of yourself and to why you're here. Of course, the next step is perhaps to allow yourself to reach out to someone who you know has the capacity to sit and truly be with you and to let them know about some feeling. Even if it's to say, I'm not sure where to begin. There's much about me in my life I don't share with anyone, but I'm figuring out that that's a problem. You start where you are with someone who has the capacity and willingness to listen. And of course, sometimes that's a professional. I do a lot of talking about emotions not killing you if you feel them. You may think you'll be swept away by them, but likely you won't be. They are simply unfamiliar to feel, yet there are exceptions. There are people whose emotional life so governs their existence, that feeling them more deeply without the support of a professional can be dangerous. And I've had people dissociated in my office, meaning that their minds are protecting them from remembering certain things by literally detaching from whatever they're talking about mentally, and they sort of go somewhere else. It's just too dangerous. 
often that's when trauma is involved. So a huge caveat of what I'm saying today is to be very careful if trauma is involved or if you're someone who is highly governed by emotions. But anyone can experience panic or confusion or dissociation. I just don't recommend that anyone try to deal with trauma alone. It's too much. You need a guide. You need support. He went through the trauma once alone. You don't have to go through it again alone. I've read Kristen Neff's book, Self-Compassion. She has some wonderful ideas about how to build it into your life as well. And I'll have the link to her book in the show notes. Our listener email today, she's the SpeakPipe opportunity, which I'm so glad a few more of you are using. Here's her question. I have two older sisters. The second eldest sister just tried to commit suicide a few days ago. could be about a week ago. And while on one hand I'm distraught and I spend the entire evening in tears, on the other hand I'm angry. And I don't know if it's right or fair for me to be angry, but I'm angry that she did this to herself. I'm angry that she didn't think about her two children when she was doing it. I'm angry that she threw our entire family into this this funk because of what she did. And I know that she can't help it and that it's a mental illness and that she needs help, but I can't help being mad at her for doing it. So here's my response. Anger is often not the first response that a family member or loved one has to someone either dying by suicide or attempting suicide, but it's one that is usually felt by many as it's part of grief. I've even had people tell me of anger they felt about accidental deaths. It might not be rational, but it's there. Your life is suddenly and inexplicably changed, and you can get mad. You're left with a lot of responsibility, or you don't understand the reasoning, or you even wonder what happened in the accident. But if there are children involved, or there's no obvious-looking reason for someone to be that desperate that they would consider suicide, people will feel anger and actually then turn around and label the suicidal act as selfish. The thing to remember is that there are three major feelings or beliefs associated with suicide. Hopelessness, impulsivity, and believing that others would be better off without you. Someone who is severely depressed or overwhelmed can convince themselves quite well that the third is true, no matter how irrational that may seem to you. It sounds to me as if this listener is mostly angry because of the children and the family upheaval that this kind of act can bring. And she's also recognizing that she wants to remain compassionate and try to understand the depth of her loved one's pain. Now, balancing those two out is where you have to live for a while. It's uncomfortable. You're angry, confused, and hurt, and then you also feel compassion, talking about compassion again, and love. Now, some families will throw shame in there or embarrassment as well, as if their loved one's struggle cast a shadow over the family. That doesn't help. Or it casts a shadow on the love that person had for their children or their family. But people who struggle with suicidality will certainly tell you that those things are separate in their own minds, their love for their families or their children, and their struggle with depression. It is true that depression lessens your ability to recognize the impact of your behavior on those around you. That's a feature of the illness, which makes it even more difficult to handle. Now, chronic suicide attempts or verbalizations of wanting to die, especially if loved ones believe that it has become attention-seeking, can also obviously lead to anger. 
their family members or friends tire of trying to help. This can lead to tragedy if it's truly a case of someone losing their grasp on wanting to live, but at other times the person will come to understand if given this realistic feedback that you're using us up, they can use that awareness to help them grow and find other much better solutions or resolutions. But it can feel like a real crapshoot if you set that boundary, and it's tough to handle. Again, I always recommend in trying to make decisions like that to talk with your family members and friends and to bring a therapist in who might be able to come up with some other ideas. Thanks for a great question. I'm so sorry about your family members struggling and the struggle and the impact it's had on your family. It also just occurred to me, as I said that, that sometimes it's easier to express anger than fear. So, you know, you might want to think about, are you actually afraid as well? You know, it's funny how sometimes when I'm talking, I can get ideas that I didn't write down before. I'm sure there are other ideas about this topic because it's a complicated one. But I hope that's helpful. Thank you so much for being with me here on Self Work Today. I have to shout out to my son, although he I don't think he listens to the podcast. But anyway, it's his birthday. And happy birthday, Rob. I love you so much. It's a very special day, the day you were born. I remember looking at him, guys, and saying, what have I done? <laughs> oh, what an immense responsibility, but it's been an immense joy as well. Thank you for the ratings and reviews you're leaving wherever you listen to self-work. That means so very much. And share it with a friend. Tell your friends about what self-work has meant to you. Maybe it's made therapy more normal or more approachable. Maybe you just like some of the common sense approach that I offer. But I'd love for you to share your interest in self-work. Also, thank you to those of you who've left me ratings and reviews for my book, Perfectly Hidden Depression, on Amazon or wherever, Barnes & Noble. I really appreciate that. The book's been out now a year and a half, and sometimes books kind of die at that period of time. But I've always thought that this book would be more like (laughs) the tortoise and the hare, and it would be the tortoise. And sure enough, that's kind of what it is. So if you don't mind giving a review to a tortoise, I really appreciate it. Thank you for being here. My website's drmargaretrutherford.com. My email is askdrmargaret at drmargaretrutherford.com. And I'd love to hear from you either way. Again, my gratitude to you for being here. Take very, very good care. I'm Dr. Margaret, and this has been Self Work.